0: It's funny how echo chambers develop. You seek validation for your own opinion, the internet provides a plethora of opportunities to find such validation, and soon you're down a rabbit hole full of people who think exactly like you do. For those seeking safety and recovery in the aftermath of a traumatic or toxic church experience, it's a valid and valuable time for healing and recovery, buoyed by the knowledge that you certainly are not alone, that you're not even the one at fault, However, life in the echo chamber is dangerous in the long term. We don't see our blind spots, we don't confront our judgments, or even the deeply held opinions that become their own type of dogma, ironically the very thing many of us escaped. Unchurchable was founded out of a desire to explore faith and spirituality in a deeply individual and empowered way. It was founded for those of us who, for some reason or another, were no longer comfortable or able to survive and thrive within churches, especially those available to us in our local areas but never at any point did I want it to become another echo chamber. While I was perusing the website of a popular American writer who specializes in religion, culture, and politics, I saw a statement that proclaimed, if the church would wake up to its current realities and return to its foundations, its best days could yet be ahead. And I knew I had to explore this idea. Now, in the socially distanced COVID-19 era, the relevance of church is perhaps even more under pressure than it ever was, or is it? Much to my surprise, that writer, Jonathan Merritt, said yes to my interview request. He's an award-winning contributor for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, the author of a number of acclaimed books such as Learning to Speak God from Scratch, and the author of more than 3,500 articles published in a number of reputable outlets. He's a regular on television, print and radio, as well as a slew of other speaking engagements, and he took time out of his writing sabbatical in upstate New York to talk to me about how the church can see greater days. I was impressed with his humble and gentle spirit, and I hope his informed optimism, balanced optimism, I dare say, can give you a shot of hope. It sure did for me. A bit of a different topic today on on, uh, how the church can reach for greater things, and you know what, a number of other topics spanning, uh, let's just say, the culturally significant moments that we have witnessed in recent history. Now, due to a little recording glitch, my audio had to be rescued. Um, I rescued it okay, I think. It's pretty clear. It just sounds like I'm up the back of the shed. So sorry about that. Um, but. Jonathan's um, audio comes through clear as day so that's really all that matters in the long run Um, he also did this beautiful section on not seeing things in the binary anymore like not seeing things so black and white and then in the wrap-up you'll see that obviously that was a little bit of a mind bender for me Uh, but still it's a wonderful session and I really hope you enjoy it as always I'm Kit Kennedy and this is Unchurchable Hello and welcome to another episode of Unchurchable. I'm Kit Kennedy and I'm here with Jonathan Merritt, uh, an internet famous person that I have uh, probably fangirled a little bit over in the past. Jonathan writes about faith and culture. He's the author of Learning to Speak God from Scratch and also the the gentleman behind the Seekers and Speakers podcast. How are you today, Jonathan?
1: Oh, I am doing well and it is it's my pleasure to be with you. I'm so glad to get to have a conversation with you.
0: Yeah, now you're back off, you're fresh back off a one-month writing sabbatical, aren't
1: you? I, you, you know what, even even better than that, I'm still on it. I decided oh. to to <laughs> extend uh, my sabbatical for a couple of weeks. And so I am uh, actually not even in, in Manhattan today. I am in upstate New York, uh, just oh, doing okay. a little bit of writing.
0: Yeah, now I, am I allowed to ask you... Is this a new book? What's it about or is that too soon?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a new book um, it is a book um, about uh, the, the spiritual nature and um, spiritual tools for mm-hmm. healing trauma and oh, so I hello. think it will be a <laughs> I think it will be a great uh, a great book. it's going to be a little bit different for me
0: yeah but I'm excited yeah. about it yeah I'm excited about it too now that you mention it. Um, Unchurchable is a podcast that was born out of um, you know people losing church um, and losing community often out of religious trauma mm-hmm. and um, or all sorts of different traumas. So a lot of us are kind of a little bit, uh, jaded with church, but not with Jesus. In in a lot of cases, and and others have kind of a tidal relationship with church. So mm-hmm. definitely hearing about spiritual tools to heal tra- trauma is a really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Now, I uh, think it's an interesting time uh, to be American in terms of trauma. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, an <laughs> interesting sure. year. Um, so. Yeah, what's the climate like in, in New York State?
1: <laughs> well, I would say uh, it's been better, it's been worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, you know, we're seeing our COVID numbers climb currently mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there's some economic recession going on, all of that is, is, yeah. is troubling. And I think the political unrest in our country, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of is oh, yeah. creates a lot of tension um, yeah. and frustration, and it feels exhausting. Um, you know, yeah. we've got an election coming up, and uh, so a lot of, of, of Americans are hoping for, for change. And yeah. a lot of Americans are hoping that uh, they will not see any change and so uh, I think we're anticipating a moment in which a large number of Americans end up very disappointed and uh, the question for us when you look back over our last few years uh, is will that that disappointed swath of America resort to um, violent uh, expressions of their frustration Uh, Will there be rioting? Um, Will there be um, looting? Will there be uh, gunned, you know, militias in the street? I think there's a lot of um, of of, of, uh, I'd say nervousness about what the next phase uh, of American history looks like.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, it's it's interesting. It's certainly an election, I think, that the world is watching with bated breath, because as much as uh, your commander in chief is, you know, <laughs> is the American <laughs> head of state, it's mm-hmm. certainly something that has far reaching effects on the rest of the world. And, um, you know, 2020 has been one of those times in which I don't know how fiction writers go because it's certainly been stranger than fiction. I don't know how you'd possibly top this year. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I read I, I read a lot of your stuff and I was on your website and I read this quote. It said, if we wake up to our current realities and return to our foundations, the faith's best days may yet lie ahead. And... I thought that quote was so interesting because it's kind of a marriage of optimism and pragmatism mm-hmm. um, and yet such a complicated topic mm-hmm. what what led you to to write that and you know and how do we as Christians um, be it in church or out of out of it kind of collaborate
1: towards yeah it? you know um I think that we are in um uh, a moment where the church has become incredibly institutional. Mm-hmm. Um, it is incredibly political. Um, it is incredibly and increasingly divided. Yeah. Um, it is uh, a place, oftentimes, where spirituality goes to die, yeah. and that's unfortunate because yeah. when you look at uh, the movement that this was born out of, that Christianity was born out of. It was um, imaginative. It was um, inclusive. Mm-hmm. It was um, aligned always with the marginalized and the the, the powerless, the voiceless. Um, and that's not what it looks like today, <laughs> no. oftentimes. And so yeah. I, I think that... Uh, we have, in many ways, uh, moved far away from um, the, the core, uh, the theological core, the core of practice, uh, the, 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 the core posture of Christianity. And that is one of the reasons why there are so many people who are taken with Jesus, taken with uh, the, the, the teachings uh, of the faith to some degree, yeah. but uh, increasingly are rejecting uh, the system that we call Christianity, and I think many times for good reason. Mm.
0: It's, it's a fascinating thing because obviously you're, you're a journalist and you're an author, so words are kind of your heartland. Mm-hmm. Um, even the word Christian has become quite loaded I find that, because um, I, I used to be a hardcore conservative, uh, came from quite a dominionistic movement, which uh, basically I view as the, the problem in what, a lot of what you just <laughs> uh-huh. said there. Uh-huh. Um, but when you've crossed over from conservative to quite a progressive um, Christian space, you um, it's, it's interesting how uncomfortable people are with the word Christian mm-hmm. and they kind of fumble around and say, oh, I'm Jesus follower or can you say post-Christian or, mm-hmm. you know, and we don't quite want to surrender the word Christian for fear of what that means for us, but we also don't quite, quite want to engage with it. What do you find around the terminologies that, um, that are emerging um, within this kind of I won't say Reconstructionist idea, because that harks back to <laughs> Rush Dooney, but there's this idea around reinventing the church into the future.
1: Well, uh, listen, the church is, has always been reinventing itself. Um, if you, There's a great book that was written by a German theologian many years ago named Jaroslav Pelikan mm-hmm. called Jesus Through the Centuries, And in it, he talks about how um, every generation, every epoch of Christians reimagined Jesus on their own terms and in their own ways. And and that's how the faith uh, lived. Um, And so I think it's it's always the call uh, for us to reimagine the faith in our way for our day. And that includes some mix of retaining uh, yeah. what has been handed to us that serves us well, mm-hmm. some amount of shedding, which uh, allows us to release the things that have been a part of the faith but are no longer useful to us or helpful yeah. to us or life-giving, mm-hmm. and some uh, part Of resurrection of Uh, of recovering (laughs) recovering something that was once a part of the faith but has been left behind Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that uh, you know what 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 happens is is when 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 generations go through that there's always um, some degree Mm -hmm. of resistance to that that there are individuals who say no the 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 faith that I have known should not be touched. It should be passed on just as it is. And there are others who, uh, in part, because they've been so deeply hurt by the the thing that goes by the name Christianity, yeah. that their impulse is to throw it all out, uh, not to to sort of sift through it, uh, but. I think there's a, a, almost always a, a number of people who continue to, to move forward. And they both deconstruct the faith and then reconstruct it into something that feels novel to some degree. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you remember the late Phyllis Tickle, who wrote a book called The Great Emergence, she mm-hmm. says that, that we're going through a rummage sale. Uh, a (laughs) theological rummage sale, an institutional rummage sale, a communal and relational rummage sale, but she says that this is essentially something that happens about every 500 years uh, in in Christianity. So whether you have the Great Schism or the Protestant Reformation, whether you have um, Constantine who sort of creates um, a marriage between church and state, uh, yeah. all the way back, uh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. Every few hundred years, we kind of do this. But I think it's even more granular than that. I think it moves from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. Now, there are big punctuated changes, but I think we're going through one of those punctuated changes right now. And how can we not? With the advent of social media and the Internet, uh, the world has changed, you um, faster than it has in previous eras and so the church i think is also changing uh rapidly
0: that's yeah and you've raised a few really interesting points there certainly the the rate of change um in the last hundred years has been really quite something because we've moved from having the big institutions of religion to kind of the azusa street revival to sort of the the charismatic the Catholic charismatic renewal in the late 70s and early 80s, and now we're seeing the neo-charismatic and sometimes branded apostolic moves within the church. A lot of which the the theological ground upon which they build themselves is quite uh, murky, I suppose. <laughs> to try to kind of sift through it and find out what they actually do believe in a lot of cases. Um, but what you what you've said there about the reinvention is an interesting thing because one. I guess, accusation that I hear a lot about people, uh, who are deconstructing is, well, you can't adapt church to your culture. But what I hear you saying is that that has been happening all along.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so holding on to, you know, so, so I guess what's your kind of litmus test in terms of what you, what you pick up from that rummage sale and, and keep it with you?
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, there are lots of different lenses uh, Mm -hmm. through which we determine what's in and what's out and it happens through a process that we lost uh, many of us lost this generation which is a process of discernment allowing ourselves to sift in the uncertainty in the I don't know yeah. And to begin asking questions like, um, is this doing us well? Is this, is this, is this um, harming us or helping us? Is this making us more loving and more inclusive or less? Um, does this make God out to be a monster? Yeah. Or is it, is it making God out to be the capital L love that we know God is? Uh, to be Uh, does this comport with what we've learned about the world through God's uh, general revelation the the knowledge of God that comes to us through logic and science through listening to stories and so um, there is I think uh, a a way of sort of um, thinking our way through it by asking those big questions Um, In addition, there's a way of practicing our way through it. So we begin to to look at what uh, the challenges are that we're facing and the problems that we're facing. And then we look back through the whole uh, of Christianity in all of its many expressions throughout history, uh, across geography, and asking ourselves um, which practices and beliefs are the ones that we need to survive this moment uh, yeah. you know at its base most basic I think uh, the church is held fast to the creeds uh, yeah. if you look at um, you know the, the the triune God and the resurrection and um, mm-hmm. you know the Son of God in Jesus um, but that is, you know, says very little about whether women can be pastors or gay people <laughs> can get married or what you should do yeah. about Black Lives Matter. And yeah. and so there's, I think, uh, a constant contextualization that yeah. has to happen.
0: It's interesting that you raise those issues. Um, Australia, oh my gosh, it's three years ago now. It must be three years ago now. We had the uh, marriage equality plebiscite and uh, currently... The, the ex-gay movement, which I've, I've seen you write about, um, is, is wonderfully under fire <laughs> in that a few states uh, um, have actually uh, banned it already. I think two have banned it already and there's interest from other states to ban conversion therapy, which is just absolutely music to my ears as i've supported my wonderful ex-husband through his recovery from that Mm. um but it's it begs it raises this interesting uh conversation um certainly on social media where it, it can be kind of a turf war is, you know, people use these harsh words to to describe um, this beautiful LGBT community. And it all comes back to this thing of sin and not sin. Now, as part of my deconstruction, I stopped using those words. I started using helpful or not helpful (laughs) mm -hmm. Um, because I was having been raised under this sort of Calvinistic kind of depravity focused, um, you know, avoidance based faith. Um, I had to kind of reinvent that so you in all of your wordsmith ways um, and you're talking to a fellow ghostwriter here so you know I'm, I'm kind of this is my heartland too mm-hmm. um, what do you think about the word sin in the modern vernacular
1: well I would say you know a couple of a, a couple of things um, words are just empty containers Words don't have any meaning, except the meaning that we give to words. You know, we all agree what a word means, and then we sort of get on with it and start talking (laughs) with that word. And so it's the way that we make meaning. It's shaped by a community's experiences, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of packed with um, our values. Yeah. but meaning the meaning that we give to words changes over time (laughs) and i think that uh we have forgotten that we've forgotten that primarily because we are uh we are people who have lived in a world uh where dictionaries exist (laughs) and dictionaries give us this impression that there's a fixed immutable definition to words. And if you don't like the definition to that word, then you have a choice to either use it or stop using it. And so a lot of people say, I don't like what sin means or what it has come to mean. And so I'm just not going to use it. Um, The only problem with that, and there are lots of problems with it, is the thing that was inside the box of sin that made it, meaningful and useful at some point has not been dealt with it's just been discarded Mm -hmm. and so you know what do you call the things that aren't right in the world Um, unhelpful gets at that concept but it doesn't get us all the way there if we talk about brokenness it gets at that concept but again not All the way there imperfection Um, when you look at the 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 Bible the Bible uses the term sin it it evolves um, in uh, at least two or three times uh, throughout the writing of the canon uh, with the final concept being a kind of financial or transactional concept (laughs) Uh, in in our day, the word sin was was often um, weaponized. Yeah, it was it yes. was turned into uh, a label that describes what's wrong with you, not okay. so much what's wrong with us. Uh, it was particularized in a way, uh, yeah. and and as a result, I think that the word has become so negative that it lodges in our throats and. And it is not a word that many of us like to use, and it has fallen, or it is falling into yeah. neglect. But but the point is, is that not talking about sin does not make sin go away.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, that's very validating that uh, you, you answered a question about sin with that line. I uh, think that's kind of ironic <laughs> mm-hmm. so um earlier on we were talking about kind of the um, the marriage of church and kind of power when originally the church was you know it was about the marginalized and it was about inclusivity mm-hmm. and when we certainly have moved quite far away from that no i saw with interest um, you were watching the, uh, the Twitters while, um, while the presidential debate was on and I think we both spotted a tweet that got put up by a probably unemployed member of the Hillsong social media staff
1: uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh-huh.
0: in, in where they'd kind of tweeted about um, about Trump and forgotten that they were still on the work account. Um, it, it's interesting seeing these, these big churches kind of cherry pick um, when they are apolitical and when they're kind of in the white house, praying for the president kind of thing. Uh So, but the dominionist sort of doctrine, that seven mountains doctrine, Uh um, has been so appealing to people. And it's really kind of weaseled its way right to the heart of what, you know, a lot of church movements are these days. Can you envision a way in which church, it can kind of evolve back to a point of being about Inclusivity and about the marginalized, and not about power, or is this a too hard basket, and we start over?
1: Well, there there are probably lots of of paths to that. Um, There's the easy way. If we could if we could think in sort of binary terms, and I don't always like to do that, but we could think (laughs) about it as the easy way and the hard way. Um, The easy way is what I described in the quote that you referenced, Mm -hmm. that we would wake up. Um, you know, s- spirituality is a lot of things, Yeah. um, but one thing that I think it is, is it is waking up, it is awareness, it's sort of, uh, a- awakening, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you have to waken to is to, uh, awaken to, um... What your faith should and should not be, where it has gone wrong, where it can be uh, better. And, you know, mystics throughout uh, Christianity, and I would say across uh, religious disciplines, have sort of um, clung to this idea that spirituality can be summarized to some degree. Yeah, Through two words. Wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the, that sort of represents the easy way to do it yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, the universe, the capital U universe, will often give us opportunities to wake up before it forces us to do so. <laughs> um, uh, a, another yes. way is the hard way, which would, would mean to return to the conditions under which that perspective becomes a necessity. Uh, Those were the conditions of the first 300 plus years of the church when the church had no power. In fact, when to be Christian uh, was a danger or a risk to one's health and safety, Uh, I could certainly envision a world where the church, in part, because it has become such an instrument of uh, marginalization uh, becomes the recipient of it itself, where to be a Christian would uh, mean taking on a certain level of cultural, social risk. And uh, that would be a forcible way Of making Christianity return to itself one of the reasons for that would be that uh, oftentimes it is the quote unquote Christians that change Christianity it's the people who take on the name but uh, don't honor the heart of the tradition and those folks um, will tend to fall away uh, yeah. when the institution no longer becomes advantageous. And so there's a kind of winnowing effect uh, yeah. when the church uh, exists on the margins. And I think there are a lot of people who say uh, that would be both a terrible thing and also a wonderful gift for the yeah. church.
0: There's, yeah, there's a few really fascinating things that you've said in there um and i I suppose the idea of the idea of waking up I, i this this whole deconstruction movement uh and i'm calling it a movement because um we didn't really use the word deconstruction in application to faith you know 20 years ago 30 years ago it seems to be this new thing and it um i mentioned before that we had kind of the charismatic renewal and then we have the neo charismatic movement. It seems like deconstruction follows on from that somehow when people start pulling at the thread of, of belief and, and waking up a bit. And it doesn't seem according to the data that a huge percentage then go towards atheism. They, or even agnosticism necessarily, they seem to just struggle with church, but still call themselves Christians from afar. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of that, that process of of waking up, um, but then not really knowing what to do next in terms of engagement with um, with not so much the faith itself, but the institutions of faith. Um, And what I've noticed is that it can be very easy for sort of the conservative arms and the progressive arms of Christianity to become their own echo chambers when somebody goes, okay, I don't belong here anymore. I need to belong over here. Um, you kind of have this, you know, conservative or, you know, traditional church versus the work church, almost. How do we, is the best thing to just go with that migration or is it to kind of, to quote the old wisdom bloom where you planted and try to create change there? Or is it kind of Obviously, situation dependent. Sometimes, when you start pulling at that thread, you might find yourself excommunicated, um, which is or disfellowship, which is also a reality. <laughs> what, mm-hmm. What's your advice there in terms of that? Uh, you know, what to do once you wake up?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think you 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 have um, you know a number of of options, and I think you've named three of those options. Uh, one is stay. One is go. And one is create create something new um, I think those are all valid options I think the answer is a question of calling I think it's a question of vocation what is it that I am supposed to do um, uh, oftentimes, we think there must be a right answer because we were raised in traditions that told us yeah. there was always a right answer. But, uh, you know, we, we're taking the tools of the very thing we're leaving, um, and the tools are part of the problem. Um, so there isn't an, an answer. There are a range of answers and each of those answers are imperfect. Each of those answers have a set of liabilities and assets. Yeah. And so when somebody is sort of in their process of awakening and now is asking the question of community uh, or membership alignment, who what group should I be a part of? Do I stay with my current group? Because you know what? If all of us leave, there will be nobody here to see that it changes. Uh, In addition, there's an emotional and intellectual investment that I've made, and how do I retrieve that if I leave? Um, uh, You know, it is not a good thing to leave a community for no community, even if that community is uh, less than perfect. And so it's a hard decision to make. And for some people, I think staying is the right decision. They become the kind of um, the the sand in the oyster, the mm-hmm. thing that um, that sort of um, uh, prompts transformation, and mm-hmm. uh, that that's a great thing. That the, there there are unbelievable uh, leaps in human evolution and progress that are a result of somebody who said, "I'll stay." Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think that sometimes it's it's an act of self-martyrdom. It's a violation of, of self-love. It's a failure of self-care when somebody stays in an environment, uh, particularly one that would be abusive, yeah, uh, harmful. Yeah. Uh, I think that oftentimes um, toxic faith has primed us to make that very bad decision. Uh, because it tells us that to lay down your life for the sake of the community is noble, it's holy. Uh, there is a martyr complex that the church has developed throughout the, the centuries and has continued to sort of hand on so that to do the worst to yourself is somehow to do the best to yourself. And uh, I would say that oftentimes the last thing you should do is bloom where you're planted because you know you have enough information to say you'll never bloom there Uh, this is a place you will go to die Um, some people can create something new but not all of us have the skill set or the network or the privilege to create something new the power to create something new I mean the the father of five who is you know working at a toll booth 50 hours a week and, and working nights, uh, you know, down at, at a, the local restaurant. He doesn't have the margin, the privilege, the power, the network, the ability to just sort of create a, a new community. And so what do you tell that person? That person has to make a real decision in the limits that he or her, that, that, that he's been given. And so I think that, that the individual has to look around. Count the cost. Look inward, uh, and 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 begin to survey the harm that has or is being done, uh, the the strength that that person has, the 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 direction that that person feels drawn, and then to look up and say, to the divine, what would you have me do, and to feel your way forward, but. Uh, there is no answer, I think, to that question. There are just a lot of different answers. And depending on, on what you have tolerance for in terms yeah. of the downsides, uh, yeah. you have to make your own decision.
0: And, and that's uh, making your own decision is quite a courageous move, I think, when when you might have grown up. Um, seeing church as quite, as as the authority and the decision maker to which you should conform. So a a lot of, one, one thing that a lot of deconstructing Christians actually struggle with is the right to make their own decisions about the place in which their faith, fits best the the place in which they are able to um, engage and and thrive with within so certainly that's an interesting place to be Um, in terms of um, it's interesting talking about this kind of waking up this making decisions according to what is what is right for you and what is right for your family and what's right for um, your resilience and your privilege because really it's kind of disabusing us i think of a bit of good christian gullibility (laughs) where we just trust um you know just trust that that a certain political party or a certain denomination or a certain um you know pastor is is what we must serve under and agree with at all costs um I suppose the mystics would talk, would, would uh, refer to that as looking inwards and the psychologists would refer to it as metacognition when you're actually starting to sift through and say, is this helpful? Is this not helpful? Is this healthy? Is it not healthy? You know, where do I fit best within all of this? Um, you're currently writing a book on uh, The Spiritual Keys to Trauma Recovery. Any wisdom for the people who are currently walking this path out of what might have been toxic church for them and kind of wondering what, what they can rely on?
1: Well, I think, that, right? I think <laughs> that one of, one of the most important and one of the first steps to healing from trauma is safety. And a lot of people are, are trying to make big and binding decisions mm-hmm. <clears throat> about their future, about their callings, about what yeah. they do and don't believe, and um, what they should and shouldn't practice. But they're doing it from a place of distress. And mm-hmm. so one of the first things I would do is, is to work to establish a sense of safety. And to yeah. put off some of these binding decisions until you can sort of get your head uh, about you. And um, you can begin to sort of um, let your fight or flight response die down. You mm-hmm. can sort through what's been done to you. And then I think uh, you, can, uh, you can begin to make big decisions. A lot of people try to do it all at once because it feels so big to untangle yeah. Uh, that ball of yarn and try to sew something together that's beautiful that they want to get it over as quick as possible and um, This is big work. It takes time to wake up. It takes a lot of time to wake up It's not something that happens all at once Uh, You begin to stir and move and your eyes adjust to the sunlight and even then uh, once you sort of rise up and start moving, it takes time to, to get your sea legs underneath you. And so I, I try to give people um, permission to step back, to take a break. Um, you, you also, I think, um, people will tend to um, move forward without doing the work of healing Yes. And after awakening comes healing. And healing from spiritual abuse is uh, its a, a new frontier uh, in trauma studies. It's something that is just now sort of coming to the fore. We're just now seeing books pop up and having um, honest conversations about spiritual and religious abuse. And there is a kind of post-religion traumatic stress disorder that we're already seeing where people have... Um, a scrupulence they have almost a kind of spiritual or religious OCD uh, you know <laughs> where you would wash your hands a thousand times this could be somebody who makes constant confessions who con- who feels a chronic sense of 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 sinfulness or brokenness and that takes a lot of time uh, yeah. to overcome so what I encourage people to do is to, uh, first thing, is to establish a sense of safety and then to begin to kind of put together a team of people, uh, your therapist, your doctor, and other people who you know, love, and trust who can walk with you uh, along this journey, which is going to be a a long journey to uh, determining the damage that has been done, how to repair that damage, how to build resiliency moving forward, and I, I would hope, To develop a vibrant spiritual life that may look a lot different than the spiritual life you came from. I think there are people who oftentimes, uh, they're spiritually uh, abused and then they they perform a kind of spiritualectomy. (laughs) They go see their doctor who can address the body and they go see a psychologist who can address the mind. But they cut themselves off from the damaged spiritual part of themselves. But we are a mind-body-spirit. We're not just a a brain-body. We are mind-body-spirit. And ignoring that part of you that has been injured by actors in bad faith, in spiritual communities, who we gave more power than we should... Uh, does not repair the damage that has been done. It allows it to continue to wreak havoc on us. And so revisiting uh, the spiritual sides of ourselves and attempting to find life again, I think is an important step when someone gets ready.
0: Yeah, I I like what you're saying there about seeking safety first. There's been a, um, you know, obviously in terms of physical you know health and and mental health it's um that we're designed to seek safety first we're designed to you know want to keep it you know our responses our sympathetic nervous system for example is all geared around the survival of the organism and yet um i've i've observed over my kind of uh 20-plus years in in uh, in Christianity, having been raised in it. Okay, 30-plus years in Christianity, having been raised in it. That just makes me sound really old. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's been this doctrine about, uh, you know, getting out of your comfort zone. And we've seen it in the motivational speakers of the world, and we've seen it from our pulpits. Actually learnt to feel as if the comfort zone is bad. But the comfort zone, I find, is actually a really good place to cultivate so that you know which risks you can take and then return to your comfort zone for that sense of wellness and and being at ease so that you don't live in this point of stress and distress. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a a very important point that you raise. Um, The other one is about certainty. Um, And, you know, it's funny. I've just started kind of writing about how I've surrendered that need for certainty and i spoke last week with abby norman about parenting post deconstruction and and she was talking about kind of the promise of certainty that that christianity had made a lot of us Um, so kind of surrendering that uh is is a difficult thing um and just because life doesn't go the way we thought it would doesn't mean that it's not going to go wonderfully Um, but it does take a while to be able to wrap your head around that and wrap your head around living faith within a position of uncertainty because some of us think that hebrews 11 1 doesn't you know mean that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you make friends with uncertainty in um in your line of, of of work kind of dealing with faith and culture and um you know media and all that sort of stuff
1: well you know the bible never really encourages um certainty and it's not been something that has, has always been a goal mm-hmm. uh, for the Christian institution. Now, of course, in the post-Enlightenment Western Church, it, uh, it, 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 it was valued or it became of, of value because of a reaction to the scientific age, um, uh, the reaction to the, the rise of modern philosophy, it became something that, um, that Christians felt they needed to, to have and they borrowed the tools of logic and uh, they created this um, sort of new hyper rational um, thing called apologetics mm-hmm. um, and that created a kind of addiction to false certainty. But, of course, mm-hmm. certainty is, is the opposite of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith is a trust. You don't trust something that you know for sure. You just believe that it's true or you, or you just yeah. accept it. Um, what faith uh, does sort of, the Christian faith does sort of set up as an end goal, is confidence. Mm-hmm. And confidence is, 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 is a cousin to certainty. But there are significant differences. Confidence makes space for the heart of faith, which is mystery. You know, Christians in the Bible are, are not called stewards of the certainties of God. They're called stewards of the mysteries of God. I
0: never thought
1: about that. I and like and that. So, so what does it mean to hold these things that we don't fully know, that we are convinced we will never fully know, uh, and what does it mean to enter into those spaces and forge ahead into the infinite knowability mm-hmm. of God? And, uh, you know, I talk about that in my, my last book. Uh, I talk about that in the, in the mystery chapter. Because, you know, I grew up in, in, in a world where the mystery of God was a puzzle that you solved. And that is not, you know, at all what what we're encountering when we're encountering um, the Christian text. We're encountering, instead, the infinite knowability of God, that you continue to know and know and know in an experiential way, not just a cognitive way, mind you. You continue to know through the experience of the divine and yet find that you have learned no more than you ever did. (laughs) That you continue to enter, but you're no closer to the goal. You haven't gotten any closer to certainty than the day you started this path of knowing. And a lot of people don't like that because it requires more work. It requires more engagement. It means that you don't have the right answer for everything. Unless, of course, you can begin to accept that I don't know is often the right answer. And so I think that for a lot of people, they would rather cling to a false certainty than a true unknowing. And yeah. um, for for many people, that's why faith for them has become as simple as uh, solving a math equation or memorizing an index card.
0: Yeah. Now, um, that that's, yeah, I, I relate very strongly with that. Now, what do you, like... But I grew up within a prophetic kind of a movement mm-hmm. where apologetics really didn't play a big part. Um, so, would you say that that apologetics is one form of over reliance on certainty, and perhaps over reliance on the prophetic is another?
1: Well, I think that that over reliance on the prophetic uh, does offer. Um, Maybe not certainty just in the cognitive sense, but what, what will often happen in prophetic movements is they, in, in order to, to get the same result, which is knowing the, the right thing, um, they combine experience through direct revelation with the divine and hierarchy. So you're still seeding your ability to know to something else, to some other system. You're saying yeah. um, this person knows better or more or more directly than I do yeah. because they're higher up in the hierarchy, right? In the sort of the, the you know, we, we were always, re, we were always constructing these towers to heaven and yeah. the yes. person at the top is more reliable, and yeah. so they tell you what's true and yeah. you believe it. Uh, yeah. you, you're not necessarily waiting for verification because you, you've ceded this kind of power to the person at the top. And so the mechanism is, is different. I think you're right about that. It's a, it's a different mechanism, um, but in, in many ways it is the same. It's saying that knowledge, true knowledge, comes from outside yeah. of me. It's either an external system of 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 um, you know logic, yeah. or it's the experience of the leader. And right. in one case, by the way, uh, when we talk about these apologetic movements, they also have hierarchy. Yeah, so either you hear from God better than I do, or you're. Or you're a more logical thinker than I am. But either way, I trust that you you have taken me to the conclusion. You have taken me to the capital N or capital K uh, knowledge of God. And um, in either case, it allows us um, an off-ramp. Mm. We don't have to sit and meditate. And we don't have to go out into the wilderness and the desert. All we have to do is listen to what you're saying accept it and move forward and so uh, in many ways the mechanisms are different some of there's some some sprockets that have been pulled out and replaced in the machinery um, but there are a lot of similarities as well
0: yeah and it, it seems to me that what you're sort of talking about is um fast food faith versus slow food faith i guess in a way in that um you know we can no longer just turn up um on a sunday and have somebody else kind of just deliver us this this neatly packaged quick fix of of spirituality and and ethics and (laughs) and instructionals on how to live our lives and and express our um our followership of christ it has to be a a slower more deliberate more contemplative um more difficult i suppose well not more difficult more effortful um version of christianity but that's not a bad thing is it because it means that we go deeper and it means that a lot of us will deconstruct and hopefully a lot of us will deconstruct and reconstruct at the same time and kind of arrive at a, at a, a healthier form of faith but i don't think we should fear that that version of Christianity and spirituality that requires more of us and disabuses us of our gullibility and and calls us to lean on our discernment a little bit more um yeah so I I am encouraged by that I I think it's a different way of thinking about it but certainly an encouraging way of thinking about it
1: yeah I think Um, and and by the way um I don't want to caricature Um, Mm -hmm. in either side because fundamentalism is also hard in its own way it comes with a great cost Mm -hmm. Um, it's a different kind of cost Uh, Mm -hmm. but you know if you talk to a fundamentalist uh, they will look at the mystic and say you want the easy way Mm -hmm. because you don't have to have the constraints of my system you don't have to have all of the rules that I follow and to some degree they're right um, what I don't want to do is to is to prop up this fallacy that the hardest faith is the best faith um, so I'm not saying just because it's harder um, it, you know it's better what I think is is that there is a kind of hardness that people that certain types of people resist which is why they end up, seemingly happy in forms of of religion that i think are incredibly deficient
0: yeah um and it's a it's a very uh, important distinction that you raise and another one i think is that um evangelicalism can be its own form of fundamentalism When, Mm -hmm. when we think of fundamentalism our brains can go straight to kind of You know polygamous cult out in the back of utah (laughs) with like head coverings and and full-length skirts but that's not necessarily what fundamentalism is it's it's kind of sticking within a rigid form of, of faith and not not being able to or a rigid form of doctrine and not being able to kind of exist outside of that i suppose That is an incredibly deficient way of explaining it but hey it is early in the morning here and i haven't had enough coffee (laughs) because waking up takes time as you very that's exactly right (laughs) i want to take a little bit of a pivot and i think it's an important one um to to talk about sort of um persecution complex um because we can kind of bunker down onto our ideas and think that we're being persecuted um when perhaps what it is is a different way of thinking so I think that's a um, just something for people to think about, but it also links with cancel culture a little bit. And I've I've noted that you have actually written on how evangelicals perfected the art of cancel culture, and now it's coming for them. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought. Can you kind mm-hmm. of ex- expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, the idea that um, that that you know, young, hyper woke liberal millennials are the first ones to create a sorting mechanism for saying you're in and you're out. You're toxic and you're not toxic. You're trustworthy and you're not. Is uh, is a, a sort of silly thing to believe if you've been paying attention to uh, Western Christianity uh, for the last 40 or 50 years that yeah. um, the, the boycott culture uh, was quite big 30, 40 years ago, um, led by conservative Christians. The, the cultural separatism uh, has, has been a part of the evangelical movement for uh, decades. And now uh, that the, the, the cultural winds are, have somewhat shifted, you've got individuals on the left who are using the same tools... Against those on the right who've been using it uh, for decades and you know as it as often happens uh, We really hate it when people mistreat us like we've mistreated them
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a powerful Moment that I think when we when we sit in that and and become you know and the shoes on the other foot and we're experiencing the mistreatment and um, you know, I think it's I think, again, it's you talked earlier about rummaging through and I think this is another um, moment in which it's good to take pause and kind of rummage through because we've learnt to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, in so many ways. It's a challenge, though, because for those of us who've experienced toxic Christianity, the tendency can be to want to throw the whole thing out. And yet, God who is infinite, God who is in everything, can bring wonderful things out of terrible situations. Um, How do you, did you find it difficult to kind of sort what God caused versus what God brought good out of? I'm sure you don't, I'm sure you're a thinker, you'd find this stuff easy.
1: (laughs) No, you know, um... It, it it is uh there are things that are oftentimes you know for me irreconcilable mm-hmm. how is a bad thing a good thing how can you um how can you declare uh something to be good while also recognizing it was terrible mm-hmm. um you know, uh, I know people who uh, were outed, mm-hmm. and that's a terrible thing. Yeah. And they will also say, you know, but they're they're. I'm really grateful that this this terrible thing that I wouldn't wish on anyone also raised questions that I would have ignored for many many years. And in that way, it, um, it was a good thing. Uh, we have to find a, a way um, to, to allow the human brain to do something that it can do, but we don't allow it to do often, which mm-hmm. is to um, hold two ideas within it at the same time. Yeah. Um, something can be wonderful and terrible at the same time, and uh, I think these, there, there are these notions of God as, as this sort of gray-bearded man who's playing chess in some far-flung heavenly realm, and, and that there is a cognitive decision that has to be made, that something does or doesn't happen, and um, that to me is a, is a bit of a, a restrictive and outdated view of God that makes this question very difficult. But if you think of God as the force of love in the world, that God is love, then love is always pushing in a particular direction. And yet love oftentimes does not win win every battle. Sometimes hate shows up and does really terrible things. Does that mean that love ceases to exist? No. Does that mean that love somehow lacks power? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, it means that, that love is not the only integer in the equation. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, I have to live again in the mystery, the mysterium tremendum, um, mm-hmm. th- that God that God exists in this equation as a constant force but not the only force that is at work. And that doesn't, to me, make God out to be just like anything else. Um, Anybody who's fallen in love knows that love is something that is so higher and greater and beyond anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, But to admit that love is the pinnacle uh, does not require us to... Uh, pretend that it is the only thing and uh, I I sort of live I think in that in that space where there's a lot of messiness and uh, many more questions than there are answers but I can both believe that love is present and active and powerful and also believe that there are other things at work that are terrible um, and I can hold those two things together at the same time without forcing myself to make one of those thoughts destroy the other.
0: Yeah. What a beautiful way to round out this session. And I hope that uh, I hope that the people who are listening um, got the same or got similar things out of it as what I did is in this time, in this climate, it is OK to look after safety um in this time it's okay to contemplate it's okay to and it's a good thing to certainly really think about things and allow yourself the time to heal and to 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 wake up slowly or wake up quickly or however you want to do it it's about your pace and and what is good for you in your situation and your family in your community Um, it's certainly an interesting year to be alive um, and i think um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to listen to this this last section about um, about good and you know good things coming out of bad places, and whether or not we can hold both both things in our hands at the same time. I mm. think that's a very important place to finish. Jonathan Merritt, thank you so much for coming on Unchurchable today. Can you tell us where we can find you on the interwebs?
1: Yes. Well, you can you can I guess in 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 um, Australia you probably would order my books off amazon um, but yes, you can also would. go to uh to jonathanmerritt.com or you can find me i'm on instagram and and twitter and facebook mm-hmm. and thank god not TikTok, <laughs> or I should say no, not that's yet
0: a, <laughs> that's a whole other kind of topic right there
1: <laughs> indeed indeed all
0: right jonathan merritt thank you so much i'm kit kennedy and this is unchurchable